Welcome to Backstory Song. I'm your host, Doug Burke. And today we're here with Rain Phoenix and Kirk Helly. Rain Phoenix has been exploring her passion for music since her earliest days. One of her early performances was with her brother River as an audience warm-up act on the show Real Kids in 1982. Rain and her family have been active in philanthropic and activist causes their entire lives. Among the many causes she supports include the Lunchbox Fund, a nonprofit organization which provides a daily meal to students of townships in Soweto, South Africa, the River Phoenix Center for Peacebuilding, the artist charity The Art of Elysium, and the Gift Horse Project, which brought together well-known and emerging artists in service of charity. Recently, Rain created a podcast, Launch Left, which is hosted by Rain and Summer Phoenix and is where famed creatives launch the next wave of music revels. Her first solo record entitled River was released in 2019 via Launch Left. The first single, Immolate, was released on River's birthday, August 23rd. In the album, River, Kirk Kelly and Rain have forged a body of work that not only serves as a totem to her brother's legacy, but also illuminates the depth and beauty of her own artistry. Okay, so I'm here with Rain Phoenix and Kirk Kelly, and um, we're on Backstory Song. We're here at the Sundance ASCAP Music Cafe that brought you to town, and you have a new album out. Right. And as you and I both know, I, as I mentioned last night, this podcast for me is a personal experience uh, based on my last conversation with my dad, I, and he said, I have to do this. And then he passed away. And, you know, it was like this thing I felt compelled to do. And uh, really, it has amazingly helped me through this grief resolution process. And I don't think you ever resolve your grief. Um, I didn't tell you last night, but my mother also passed away when I was 10 from breast cancer. And so I had to experience that at an early age. And I feel like it leaves a black hole in your heart that kind of shrinks but never goes away. And it's and everybody has to deal with grief, as you've said on stage. And I imagine that's part of this album for you. Yes, that's right. Um, thank you for sharing your story. I'm sorry for your loss. And uh, I I appreciate your story though because I think it absolutely is uh, like I just said today. I know you were at the show. Was that's the one thing that I realized in making this record about my brother River and his passing away was how um, inexplicably tied to others and their loss it is to um, just to even like you know, honor someone, you immediately realize like every single person has someone they honor or that someone that told them, oh, you should do that and then passed away as in your story or, you know, have something tied to losing others or fear of dying or, you know, and so this record really was an opportunity to share about that and, and kind of open a conversation about the universality of loss. Um, so, I really appreciate you sharing and I'm glad that you got to see us perform and felt a kind of uh, kinship and wanted to talk to us about some of the songs on the record. 
Yeah, I imagine a lot of people are going to approach you with their personal stories. Um, and I don't know if it helps you or, or not. Yeah, for me, it did help to talk to you about it last night. Um, you know, even though it's been a, a while and I am, you know, made a lot of progress in the grief resolution process. Um, but it is a process and it's like this never ending thing. And I think you touch on something that we're left here to live. And this album you've created is part of your life and your expression of your life. And yeah, I mean, I hope that it's a life affirming record in, in that it's um, not afraid to talk about death. That's a lot of why I think it is important to talk about death and loss and grieving. Um, and because culturally it's not very acceptable and we don't really do that. And that's, in many ways, like you said, I think that is part of what creates or keeps that black hole feeling very much like a, a alive in a sense, you know, as opposed to finding ways to heal by way of just like affirming that the person you really care about is no longer with you. You know, I, I don't know if that's a, an eloquent way to talk about it, but it does seem like the more that our culture turns towards death positive discussions and and um, discussions about burials or how people want to, you know, and you actually shared with me that your father had explicit instructions to not do any life support system should he um, pass away and that you and your siblings were were all there when when you unplugged you know, the, and that, that's so profound. That's something that he thought about because he, he wanted you all to not have to worry about that, but not everyone knows to do that or they're afraid to even think I'm going to die. So they don't share, they don't do that. They don't set up their death and that can cause a lot of problems in families and a lot more pain, right? A lot more grieving, um, and a lot more like uncertainty. I think it's really hard when you lose people, because you don't know what they, if you don't know their wishes, how to proceed and how to honor them. And so, um, that's why I, I do advocate for a more death positive approach to how we live our lives, because at any given moment, you know, any one of us could go and have we prepared and have we shared what's most important to us? And have we said, I love you to the people we care about. And so this record is really, it was made, you know, from a very personal space, but ultimately with, with a very vast aspiration, a universal wish to, you know, alleviate that, the suffering of losing others for everyone. And I hope that it provides a kind of healing, um, salve in that respect. And the songs, you know, vary from not all the songs and Kirk is here to kind of expound more on how we, we, the behind the, behind the songs, right. Which is kind of what your podcast is about. Um, but not all the songs were specifically, we didn't write these songs with grieving in mind out the gate or pick, you know, you know, it wasn't really specific, but what it, what happened was that along the way, about halfway through, you know, I really connected to realizing I needed to honor my brother with this record. And once that happened, we just like finished it very quick. It all came together, you know, something about that, that was like the missing link of what made this record have that that additional um, healing element that I, I think until I like understood why I was making the record, I was just making really cool songs with Kirk, you know? <laughs> so um, yeah. There's a very stream of conscious poetic aspect of your lyrics 
on the song. I mean, you, I wouldn't say it's you know, every song is about grieving, as you mentioned. So maybe we can talk about some of the specific songs and sort of. Yeah, I mean, in terms of like the song and what it meant, I have, you know, sometimes it takes me months to interpret a song I wrote and then I realize what it was for for me. But I don't like to share uh, those stories with others. But I would love to talk about the song you write that um, I brought a very like chicken scratch, as I like to call it, um, sketch of a song to Kirk. Um, really basic folk chords and what he ended up doing with that song and the instrumentation and the and the idea he had was at first really uh, different for me, but I'd love for him to share a little bit about what the process was around that because that's really behind that song is is how he came to understand it sonically based on a very simple sketch I brought him. So, Kirk, rain brings you chicken scratch. <laughs> well, I mean, I think it was a fully realized song, really. But um, I think what she's getting at is I took the chords, you know, cowboy chords, you know, basic chords behind her melody. And instead of approaching it from like a strummy singer-songwriter way, or even to plunk it out on the piano, I thought it would be interesting to write it as if it were a string quartet, but then not assign each of those parts to strings. So not like violin, violin, viola, cello, but with, because I wrote it like that, right? And then I just executed it with the guitars. <laughs> yeah, with, um, a, with a device called an Ebo, which has been around since the late 70s, and it just puts the string... It's something you put over the string and it puts it in constant sustain. You can ha you can get a string-like effect with it. Um, but at any rate, yeah, so I I wrote it uh, for string quartet and then uh, just in the studio performed each part, you know, separate like that. And what you get is uh, a feeling and awareness of what that chord might be at any given moment, but yet it's orchestrated in such a way, just like you'd hear any Bach or whatever, you know, uh, fugue or whatever, that uh, contrapuntal parts. So it's not just a, a strummy bit, but uh, all these intertwining melodies that harmonically make up the chord from chord to chord, but yet have their own melodic voice throughout, continuous throughout the piece. Yeah, there's this sort of uh, lyrical tonality 
uh, continues around these different voices that you musically create, and then they blend together and overlap and go in and out. Mm, yeah, that was the point. <laughs> yeah. No, and you use a lot of electronics on stage of some of this stuff with the two of you just performing. Well, I don't know if there's a different performance with a larger group. Of, yeah. Is touring. Um, we've been touring as a duo, so we needed to kind of rethink um, arrangements and how to best replicate it live. Um, and we definitely didn't want to go the route that um, a lot of people do, which is just kind of bring all the information, all the sonic information on the laptop, and you just hit the space bar, and then you're good for the whole song, because it's just playing the entire like a backing karaoke track. Like it's karaoke, right. Yeah. We definitely didn't want to do that. I, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that kind of thing. I it's mean, just not. Stay, stay home it, and listen to the record. Then, right. You know it's I mean? not. You're clearly... Yeah. So we... And it's not... There's some stuff that's lifted from the record and put onto this little small sampler that rain will trigger. But uh, more than half of it is just different things that were created specifically for the live duo, you know, experience. The cheesy old drum machines we we would use and uh, sample and we'd play those live. But all that stuff rains triggering live. So uh, like from the chorus to the verse to the bridge or whatever, you know, these different sections, she's hitting the pad while she's singing to bring it in, you know, and in some situations, she's even further manipulating those sounds live so that any performance you see of us doing this, there's no two performances that'll be exactly the same. And that to me is, is key. That's, that's what I really enjoy. So you write is about you writing. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I like that. That's a fun play on words. Or is it about me writing? Is it? (laughs) Well, I think it's pretty self-explanatory in that, you know, I don't, like I said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to break down the lyrics uh, and and exactly, but uh, the lyric is, I got everything wrong. I got you right. So it's, it's a kind of love song, you know, um, but it can be used interchangeably. It can be an unconditional love song for uh, between a parent and a child or, you know, two lovers or, you know, siblings, because it's really the idea that like, you know, messing up somebody, the the protagonist feels they they did something that was harmful or shitty to the other person. And they're like, you know what? I got everything wrong, but I I got you right because you forgive me. You know, (laughs) I think this concept of forgiveness, which was in my eulogy um, and with my dad, is really an important part of life that... um, a lot of people miss, you know, and we fail to forgive ourselves. We fail to forgive others. We've, you know, the one thing I, I found profound about our, my six siblings and I being there with my dad was that we actually had forgiven each other for stuff in our lives. And there was no one who couldn't be in the room with each other. And I, I, in the aftermath of that, I, people who told me stories, you know, like I, they couldn't be in the room with a sibling when their parents were dying. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's like, I'm so grateful that we didn't get to that point. But one of the foundational things was that we were able to forgive each other because, yeah, 
when your kids growing up, you don't always treat each other right, you know, and you had quite a family who's, you know, of siblings, not just River. Yeah. And, and, you know, you, Summer, Liberty, Joaquin, you know, obviously, or just being, you've been a public person, Uh you you know, you, you're an actress, you're uh, a singer with R.E.M. and Red Hot Chili Peppers. It was yeah. like my past life, but yes, yeah. I'm very, 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 yeah, very grateful for it. But that was many years ago, and uh, yes, I, I have, I've been in music and and film, but um, this is your new life. This yeah, is this is this record is really sort of everything right now that that I'm focused on. Um, this and the podcast launch left that uh, where I invite well known artists to launch emerging bands. And I know you've heard about that podcast and listened to it with my sister Summer and I host it. I love it. It's oh, it's awesome. great. It's and everybody who's listening to this should go listen to Launch Left. Uh, amazing interviews. But let's talk about that for a second. Sure. Uh, what is the purpose? What are you trying to accomplish with Launch Left? Well, Launch Left is a space for famed creatives to launch the next wave of music rebels. That's our tag. But it's also an intentional space to highlight and empower all artists for whom radical creativity is not a choice, but a necessity. So what that means is we're really interested in interviewing and hearing music from artists who are um, unapologetic about their craft and what what they want to say, and they don't bend and change the way they're going to make art to please others. They make it because it comes out of them just as it is. And they feel very strongly about it. Um, it's a, you know, a really about curation within left of center art and the idea that well-known creatives that we respect that have done things their way and gotten to the top doing it, they're who should be telling us who's the next wave of of, of those kind of artists. And really what it came about was asking myself, where who's the next Beatles? Who's the next PJ Harvey? Who's the next David Bowie? Why, why doesn't there seem to be those artists anymore that are just, to me, culture-changing figures, you know, that doesn't, they're not that prevalent. So I thought it'd be really interesting to to in a small way through a podcast at least start there but it's a much bigger idea to begin to kind of try to find those next artists and to ask the people i respect in music and art and filmmaking um to share with me who they think is great because there's a lot of music out there and that that's a that's a bonus to some extent. I'm happy for the artists obviously that can put anyone can put anything out but it also creates a overwhelming amount of music. And to me, uh, I would much rather get someone I really trust to tell me who of all these myriad of bands out there should I listen to? If I don't have much time in a week, tell me, give me the top five on your list, you know? So it was kind of a way to skim the top for others and try to have deep conversations about art and activism and culture, and then also highlight somebody unknown. Yeah, I love how the artists you bring on are very uh, passionately, organically driven. It's like part of their soul that they can't shut down. They have to get it out there. So how did you and Kirk come together? I met Kirk through my brother, Joaquin, years ago, like uh, 10 plus, I think now, uh, 2010 or nine, I think we met. 
uh, and we played together in a band for a short time and then we didn't really play music together. We both do music obviously, and we're doing other projects for a long time. And then this is amazing how this, this, we came together to collaborate on this record. It really came kind of organically, which I shared on stage today too, is, you know, we, we worked together on one song that was part of a, a small, uh, EP or double a, a side single. Um, and from there we just kept writing and producing, you know, he kept producing these beautiful pieces of music and I kept wanting to write to them. And next thing we know, it was a record that, you know, is, the, is my record river that's out now. So it was really organic. And like, uh, we have a lot of the same, uh, musical sensibilities, but I honestly just trust his musicality more than I can safely say, apart from River, who's obviously no longer with us, he's he's the person that I absolutely trust. And, and for this record, I was able to be hands-off for the first time as a producer and also even, um, yeah, as a producer, but I didn't really have to even play very much instrumentation at all. I don't think I did. I play any? I did on, I guess, Time is the Killer. And that was it, I think, <laughs> which I have to say was wonderful for me. I love that I got to just sing. And write, you know, vocal melody and sing lyrics that I wrote. But but in terms of like all the music, not only did he handle it, but he just impressed me more than anyone I've ever worked with. And so uh, it seemed very meant to be this record. And I'd love to share more and make, make him share more about some of the other songs because they're, you know, I'd never work with the composer too. And, and Kirk's also a composer. So someone who wrote, you know, symphonic compositions for instrumentation and had musicians come in that played what he wrote. You know, I, I used to have musicians improvise, you know, I would use classical instrumentation, but I never had anyone who actually wrote parts that they already heard on the song, you know, and that was something really special about working with Kirk. And, um, yeah, I, mean, I feel like we should talk about one of those songs that he wrote. Let's um, do it. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about lost in motion. I'll, I'll start it off and then I'd like you to talk about how you built that song, but I will just say that you, I heard him playing. He brought me a piece of guitar music that was beautiful and dark and I was unsure it, I could even write to it. I couldn't, find a melody but I thought it was the most beautiful music I'd ever heard but I was like I don't know if it could go on the record because I can't even think of how to write to it and then for some reason my brother River and I had a band called Alec's Attic and there was a song Lost in Motion and one day I heard that music Kirk had written and suddenly I started singing lyrics from that old old song from 1990 and somehow it made sense in the song. And so I changed the melody and I added more lyrics. And that was sort of my writing process with that song. But I'd love for Kirk to share um, the musicality, like how he built the song from it being just this gorgeous guitar piece. Well, I think Lost in Motion was one that we had a few songs. And then when it was decided that we should just carry on and make a whole record, we actually did, we needed more material. So I, I remember just sitting down, I think it was, it was pretty much a year ago. We're in January right now. Uh, you know, January of la the previous year, it just came out like, like the whole thing. That's I think I still have it on my iPhone and I just recorded it and it was maybe just a day or two later or the next, yeah, maybe two days later. I, uh, I have a small studio set up at home to, uh, 
to sketch things out. And I threw down the guitar with, um, you know, just a primitive beat and, and both the primitive beat and the, that exact guitar part <laughs> from the sketch made the record. That's what you hear. But that's how it, it started. There's no like um, whole lot of thought behind it. It just kind of came out like that. <laughs> some songs, some of the best songs in my interviews appear to have been created that way. It's almost like it's this thing that yeah, hits the, you and just got to get it down. Or, there's ones too that, that evolve over time and you really craft them and spend time with them. They're cool too. But yeah, it's a lot of fun if it just happens. So I brought up the music for her and yeah, I think she thought it was a bit dark sounding, but she came, when she came around to it and had a, she came up with this, this gorgeous melody. And then I think from that point, as it's the same with some other songs, that's when I started to hear uh, other instrumentation on it and how to flesh it out and what other things should go on there. I mean, her, the, her melody would inspire that. It's like, oh, okay, this part needs strings and this part needs this and yeah, that was all based on her melody, how, how everything else got um, orchestrated around it. There's something beautiful about the harmonics of the two of you together in performance. It's just uh, mesmerizing almost in the audience, I think. Uh, for me, it's captivating. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's part of uh, what I try to explore in this podcast is what I call the invisible language, this, you know, this marriage of the words and the sounds. And you guys captured it on this record in that way there's you 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 can't separate the two they're completely intertwined you know in song thanks that's a good thing yeah. it is a good thing and that's when you know it's working i think yeah what made you think of horn i don't know i just think of adding trumpet uh lost in motion the sax you mean at the end sorry yeah um 
but I don't have like a con concept of of why I just heard it. I think that's the same with me with a lot of music stuff. I just hear it and then I I I won't be happy until I've done it. You know, and it, sometimes it's a you know a bit of an expense to get real instruments in, and I'm always kind of a stickler for trying to do that too. But yeah, I heard sax on it. I mean, it was just um, it just seemed like a you know tenor sax in particular, kind of a low smoky sax on it um, for the the two melody bits, like the reintro and the middle eight, and then. Um, at the end, it just seems like it would be really cool to take it on a further journey and just have, you know, some crazy uh, sort of out improv on it, you know, that really took it um, out in like that old school, like no wave New York kind of way. And um, it's, yeah, it was really nice because you have this really melodic sort of foundation and then you have, you know, this blowing sax that goes, you know, out of key on purpose and scronking here and there. And it's, it, you know, it's a different way to build tension, you know? So you hear the sax in your head and there's a lot of session sax musicians in your world, I imagine. How do you pick the sax player? That's the guy to do that, that, that honky, honky, scronky sound that you're looking for. I honestly don't know even how, I'm trying to remember how I met Matt Demerit, but I immediately said, oh, my friend Matt Demerit, he's a great sax player. Um, That's with a lot of things on the record, and he was perfect for it. He really was, yeah. yeah thank goodness, you know. Like he's, and he he actually came and played, we had a residency in, in Los Angeles, and he, and you know, we had a full band for that one, which was really fun. I hope you get to see that someday, because it's a whole different experience. Um but he played with us live as well. And he's just such a great horn player. It's it's really remarkable. And honestly, like, I can't help myself. I'm just going to expound a little bit on Kirk more because, you know, what you heard that you really liked is the, uh, you know, the duo, right? Yes. Uh, very recently, we showcased um, at a film studio and we had kind of the duo, but then we added a pianist who played horn arrangements on keys as well and a cellist. And then uh, we had the full band at the residency. And each time we do this, Kirk uh, hand charts everybody's parts and oh. reconfigures the entire sonic landscape. So if you've gone to see us at, at, at let's say, each of those versions, you are seeing a completely different uh, sonic treatment to the record. And so that's uh, that's been like just awe-inspiring to a have someone that gifted be my collaborator so that like every yeah. time we play people are like wait that's different than last time and it's still that cool but cooler in this way and that and that i've never had that and i love that he's a stickler for things changing and that doesn't want things to sound the same and wants every you know time for something to be nearly unsettling in that you're not sure what's going to happen or what's that sound? Where is it coming from? And, and what's funny is all the things he's like, you know, pretty sure will happen. We get that, that feedback after each show or someone will come up and go, what's that thing that's doing that sound in that one part. And he's like, <laughs> he's like, see, I told you that's <laughs> one of my favorite instruments that I saw in your performance was um, the tap dance. <laughs> percussion and it felt or it sounded like um 
raindrops on a window pane. And I was like, oh, rain is playing raindrops. I thought that was really cool. I don't know if that's what you were going for. Uh, but tell me, what, how did that come about? Like, because, you know, I, when I think of tap dancing, I think of Shirley Temple and, you know, little girls. You don't think of like a grown up. You are a grown up, right? I am definitely a grown up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm very childish. Depends <laughs> um, who you ask. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, I, I was a tap, I tapped as a child. I, I did all kinds of dance and I love tap dance. I tapped as an adult in a cabaret troupe I was in, in New York city. And I, for some reason that, that song on the record does not have tap. And we were getting ready for a residency shows with a full band. And for some reason, right? Like one day I was just like, I think I want to do, I'm going to tap on it. Yeah. I think I'm going to tap in the, in the middle eight. I just feel like it could like uh, doing something rhythmic with my feet, you know, it made me want to tap and i i just made up a little routine and i just started doing it rehearsals i think all the band was like what the hell is going on (laughs) it wasn't like it was definitely like huh um and but it feels so good to do and i also yesterday i forget who we were talking to and i said something like it's i'm a you know it's a forlorn tap dance and they're like that's an oxymoron there is no like tap is like this happy-go-lucky jazz hands thing and i was like no but the idea of you know what's really wild and i'll share it with you now so the idea of doing a tap dance in the song time is a killer about impermanence and you know and how we're all afraid to die and we need talk about it more and like what really is important is it important that you're you know stay angry at someone and then regret if they pass that you didn't forgive them like you were talking about or it's it's a lot of heady subject matter the actual lyrics but for some reason it just felt totally right and then um i went to a at a dance store to get my tap shoes. I'm a vegan and I wanted to get a vegan pair and they had them at this one particular uh, store. And I was practicing the routine there. And she was like, Oh, uh, you got the time step down. And I didn't know that like I had choreographed this whole routine and like the main part that I was doing was called a time step for the song time is the killer. But it was again, very stream of consciousness. I didn't do that intentionally. It was after the fact that I, um, was told by a dance instructor that was at the dance place where I got my shoes. You're and, doing the time step. And the time step is when tap people want to uh, keep in time with the, each other? No, or? it's an actual, it's it's the actual dance part I do, the like hop shuffle part of it when you saw it. There's like, you know, I'm doing different tap thing uh, routines within that short window. And one of the main things I do is called the time step. It's like hop, shuffle, slap shuffle ball change hop shuffle slap shuffle ball change that's the time step but i didn't know that i just and it was perfect so for time is the killer there's a lot of time step in there and i really love the tap especially in the duo because um there's really nothing going it like we're, there's not a lot of instrumentation and you're able to hear that i did make it to create rhythm like there is no drummer so it's like it is a form of percussion that i wanted to add to it the way you healed my gaze You turned my dark to gray I'll never be the same I love you always I'll never hear your voice Calling my name out Where you lift me up You told me how to when I'm down Ooh. 
So I watched the video, the first one that I believe you've released with the album, directed by Gus Van Zandt. Um, tell me about that, if you want to, that song behind that. And Yeah, Emulate. Well, that was the first song we wrote together um, for this project. And originally it was for, uh, it was a pitch for another project, a TV um, show that actually got us the gig that we're going to eventually be doing music for. But um, so we wrote the song together. And as soon as we s- decided to do the record, um, it was like, we're definitely going to use that song. That song is really special. And it's so specifically special about loss. And, and um, yeah, it's very, very personal and very deep. So, yeah, that that's how. And then Gus was uh, has been a friend, and he's a good friend of Rivers. I was trying to include as many friends of my brothers in this record so that it could be sort of a, you know, group healing in a way. Um, oh, interesting. And, and did they find it to he, help yeah, Well, them? what was nice was that, Everyone immediately that I approached was like, absolutely, I want to be involved. And I think that in itself was was really all that I was meant was I was, it was an offering of like, if you want to be involved in this project that I'm honoring River, I would love for you to. And so everyone said Who yes. Who would say no, right. And it, well, it, was, it was just lovely. And I love Gus's interpretation of it. And um, the song is is really special. And to me, you know, can be for anyone. And, you know, I've lost many people in my life. So... Uh, you know, and so have you, and so is Kirk, and so is everyone listening. So the idea with that song was to keep it as universal as possible. So no matter what, you could put anyone and, you know, you could listen to the lyrics and you could think about the person that you miss or are thinking about that or that you lost and, and be able to experience, you know, some um, emotion about it because it is a very emotional song. I've had a lot of people say they cried and, and it was very deep for them. And that's really special because that's sort of, to me, what music is about, it has this power to, to, to really um, open your heart. And, and that's what this record is about too, is it's, I always prefer uh, meeting people and talking and getting very quickly, very deep in conversation, certainly about, um, the softness that we all share, you know, because that's actually, I think who we are and we, we cover it all up by the day-to-day grind of life and trying to be cool and trying to be business-like trying to do this or do that. But it's, it's, you know, when you, when you can share music that can bring people together around a theme that is universal, like grief and loss, and then hear their stories and, or just feel the difference in a room as a performer from when you started the set to when you finished the set. That's to me, my favorite thing about performing is, is, is that you have this opportunity to change energy in a room and to include people and, and to connect with people through music. It's a kind of therapy for everyone involved, the performer and the audience. And when that happens and it happens well, and you can feel that shift, it's priceless. Like I, I said to someone else, it's my favorite drug like that. It's the only drug I, my drug of choice is what I said to someone yesterday. Um, and it really is. It's one of the greatest feelings because you know, you're not alone and it doesn't mean you have to know everybody personally or everyone has to share their story. And, you know, grief is a very private thing. And, and I certainly feel that way about it. So it's not so much about, um, having to expound about it, but in that moment that we all share through music or through one of our sets and through the way that we are honoring, not just the the people we've lost, but the people in the audience, it's this incredible opportunity to change 
exchange the energy uh, in a group without words. It's like through melody. And I am a huge fan of that. So I'm so glad that you get it. And I'm so grateful that you asked us to be a part of this podcast. I love that you go deeper into the heart of songs and and this project is super important to both of us so thank you for having us on oh thank you for coming i really you moved me i felt a real sense of community um a communal feeling if you will being in the audience when i heard you guys perform and um there's just a powerful empathy and in your in your music and compassion and um just feelings that help me and you did make me cry. And that's always when my dad cried really easily. And so do I. And when um, I'm starting to cry now, when a songwriter makes me cry, I know they've written good songs. Yes. That's, I think that is a, I agree. You know, I feel the same way, right? Same. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thank you. Thank you, Kirk. Thank, thank you, Rain. You. Thank you.